We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 29 this morning. would invite you to um, get there. But before you get there, <clears throat> I want you to know that, that what you don't see, you see a few of us here on the platform, but what you don't see is that there's a, a group of people that I see that you don't see who are making sure we're cared for. Um, for example, today we have Ed on sound, we have Caleb as our cameraman, and we have Ben who's running PowerPoint. And, it, and, and this group, there's a different group every week. They're coming in, they're serving, they're helping us, and we just want to say thanks be to God for them that they're making this possible for us. Um, but today, I, I also need to tell you that Ben's dressed very appropriately for the day. He's dressed in his Boy Scout uniform. You can't see that, but Ben, go ahead and stand up for me, because I can see it, and, and Bill can see it, and Jeff can see it, <laughs> Jamie can see it, and there's, he's in his Boy Scout uniform. His brother Eli's at home in his uniform, because today is Scout Sunday. And so we pray God's blessing upon our scouts, and uh, we're excited for that. Thank you for wearing that uniform today, Ben. Well, as we go into the Word today, as we read the Gospel, this thought occurred to me earlier today. May we be read by the Gospel, and in it, may we listen for the points of grace. Because sometimes we read portions of Scripture and we wonder, where is the place of grace for us? Well, let's look together to Mark chapter 1 today. Justin Early was a missionary to China. Uh, he is now, he, he left the mission field and he went to law school and now he is an attorney in Virginia. In his book, The Common Rule, he outlines habits for living the way of Jesus. And mind you, he's not a pastor, he's not a theologian. He, he is an attorney who learned these habits. But the book and the lessons learned were not born out of uh, success, uh, even spiritual success, but rather they were born out of his life imploding on him. You see, he had the idea, he had the philosophy in life that he would tackle life head on, giving everything he had to be as successful as he could. And so he felt like he needed to be connected to everything. He needed to be very active. He needed to fill his schedule in his pursuit of success. And there's one other thing about Justin Early. In his belief system, he would label himself Christian. He believed in Jesus. He, he even had given his life to serving him on the mission field. But his habits revealed a different God. His habits revealed a different God. It was the God of doing, the God of serving, striving, pursuing, success. This is how he put it. He said, only in retrospect did I realize that while the house of my life was decorated with Christian content, the architecture of my habits was just like everyone else's. I hear that again. My life was decorated with Christian content, but the architecture of my habits was just like everyone else's. It wasn't any different. And he went on and he said, and that life had been working for me until it collapsed. It was working until it didn't. Anxiety and panic attacks with sleeplessness 
caused by an internal impending dread resulted in an emergency room visit. And from there, when the sleeping pills didn't work, he turned to the self-medicating choice with alcohol. And then one day, he was helping his wife in the kitchen, and she handed him some dishes to put away, and, and in a fog in his mind, he just stood there paralyzed, and he said to his wife, I don't know where these go. And as he described it, his mind had become so thin, and he was overwhelmed. He would later ask a very interesting question, and the question was this, how is it that the missionary was converted? And then he describes that conversion this way. He says, I now see that my body had finally become converted to the anxiety and the busyness I'd worshipped through my habits and routine. All the years of a schedule built on going nonstop to try to earn my place in the world had finally rubbed off on my heart. What a statement. There's got to be a different way. There's got to be a different way to be human. We were last with Jesus as he exercised authority, the authority of love, in setting a possessed man free. And we saw that he enters the mess of humanity. In fact, he enters your mess and my mess in our humanity. In an email dialogue recently about challenging things and times in life, a friend said to me, I just wanted you to know where my simple humanness is at. What do we do with our simple humanness? So we now follow Jesus out of the synagogue. We must note that Jesus is in the midst of a very human day. The synagogue scene represents the start of a long Sabbath day, where we were last week in Mark's gospel was the start of this one Sabbath day, but it was anything but restful. And in that day, we also find a discovery, and that is the discovery of a different way to be human. So let's listen to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, beginning with Mark chapter 1, verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew, Simon's mother-in-law. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you! Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. This is why I have come. 
So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Jesus makes me tired. What about you? Especially on this day. This one day is a snapshot of unceasing activity, the demands and expectations of others, and the brokenness and the needs of real people. This day is so real to life, so true to life. We watch as Jesus enters Andrew and Peter's multi-generational home. And there he finds sickness in the midst. We could imagine, we could just imagine that Peter's mother-in-law is sick in bed with COVID-19. She is symptomatic with fever. And in those days of fever represented more than just an illness, some people attributed spiritual illness to it. So imagine the fear and the pressing concern in that house. So they immediately made Jesus aware of that. And remember, this is Peter's mother-in-law. So you just have to believe that there was maybe some expectation that, you know, Jesus is with Peter and Jesus would do something about this. And he does indeed do something about it. We read in verse 31 that he went to her, he took her hand, he relieved her of the fever, he healed her. And of course, one of the most beautiful parts of that verse is she immediately got up and as a result of healing, she began to serve others. And maybe that's a sub-lesson we can learn today. But you know the old saying, there's no rest for the weary. Or that other saying, a good deed does not go unpunished. Well, his compassionate touch brings out the crowd even after dark. At the end of the Sabbath day, the moment the Sabbath day ends, out of the dark, it says, the whole town gathered at the door. And there's this steady stream of the raw pain of humanity coming out of the shadows of dusk and being poured out upon Jesus. So we get this picture of Jesus on this busy day. But again, in a demonstration of the authority of love, it says he healed many, we're told. And this goes on, it seems, into the night. It has been a very full day for Jesus. Do you ever have days like that? Where the activity level, the expectation level, the pain level, the brokenness level, the stress level, the margin level, or lack thereof, goes off the charts. Has anyone had a year like that? You see, that was the kind of day Jesus had. But it's important that we remember what the Bible teaches us in Hebrews chapter 2. It tells us he had to enter into every detail of human life. He would have already experienced it all himself, all the pain, all the testing, and would be able to help where help was needed. Jesus embraced our humanity at its richest and its weakest. And I imagine in the full embrace of humanity from Jesus, he was worn out at the end of this day. Physically, mentally, spiritually. Can anyone relate to that? 
and, and being fully human, he would be at risk of exhausting his human energies and losing perspective, just as we would, just as we do. So Jesus understands the challenge of the complex problems, the issues and people we encounter. Jesus understands the weight we carry in our care and concern for others. Jesus understands the anxiety that comes upon us because of the chaos of the world around us. Jesus understands the pressure of dealing with the expectations of others, the emotional extraction that life can have. He understands the exhaustion that life can inflict. He knows that to be human is to struggle. So where is it that you may be tapped out? Or, or better question, where do you go to find perspective and help and strength when you are? You see, that is why the real lesson in this passage is, once again, it's not about the healings and the miracles. It's not about the great success of Jesus' ministry. Look at the details of Jesus' day, details that place him in the midst of our simple humanness. The real lesson isn't this day of unceasing demands and people and even success. The real lesson is in verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And from that, and from this passage, I learned this. What about you? First of all, I learned that we are to welcome the grace of our limits. To be human is to struggle, we said. But we are coached in our world to push the limits. Yet we live in these very limited bodies, and that is one of the beauties of the incarnation. That's one of the beauties of that very Christmas season that Pastor Mary referred to earlier, that we celebrated the incarnation. The Word became flesh. And, and we understand that to mean that Jesus experienced our humanity in its fullness. That means Jesus experienced our human limits. Jesus is the Son of God. He has just healed many people. He, he spent the entire day doing so. So surely, surely Jesus of all people could just push his way through. He could just push through and keep going. But in his embrace of the human experience, he also embraced our full limitations and weakness. In fact, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13, for to be sure he was crucified in weakness. There are some strange words that we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In fact, uh, interestingly enough, wasn't planned this way, but they're the words of the verse of the day in the YouVersion Bible app, and everyone should have the YouVersion Bible app. But here are those words in 2 Corinthians 12, beginning with verse 9. Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. For when I am weak, 
then I am strong. Remember, we're talking about a different way. Those words right there kind of flip everything about strength that we think about in our culture on its head. This is the way Richard Benson, the founder of the Society of St. John the Evangelist, put it. He said, God begins every work in the greatest possible form of weakness. Remember, he was even born as a baby. He goes on and he says, we are to recognize this weakness as an almost necessary form of cooperation with God. God delights to show his favor just when we can do nothing else than feel our inadequacy. That statement captures me. God delights to show his favor. God delights to show his grace to us just when we can do nothing else than feel our inadequacy. There, there is a grace in recognizing that we have limitations. And the recurring theme of the life of Jesus is this. He puts the brakes on and he retreats with God. And he does that. He does that every time in a season of great tension or effort or, or physical and emotional depletion. He does that when he's facing temptation. He does that when he's experienced incredible activity and ministry drain. He does that after the grieving of the death of his cousin, John the Baptist, he does it. He does it after performing powerful miracles. He does it even as he's facing the shadow of the cross, as we will see when we go to communion today. What is his most human response to all of that? In Luke 5, it reads, Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. So we can't just try to push our way through. Push our way through the hard things of life in our own strength. Push our way through the hard relationships, the difficult circumstances, the painful grief. We can't just keep going and going and trying to grit our teeth and get through. And that's because we have a Savior who understands. And we're invited to, as it says in Hebrews 4, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's not saying we don't do the things we need to do to make sure our relationships are sound. It doesn't mean that we don't do the things we need to do to get our work done at our work. It doesn't mean those things, that we don't do things. But I think Pastor Mary DiLoretto summed it up when she said this. Much like our cars need to be filled up regularly, so we must be filled up with the power of God. And just because it is an unseen matter, that does not make it any less necessary. We need to be filled up with the power of God. And so here is the promise for grace in our limitations from Scripture. So there's beautiful words from Isaiah 40. He gives strength to the weary and he increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This past fall, there was a bald eagle that was making his rounds around this neighborhood neighborhood of the church. 
I saw him come over our home one day, and then I saw him a couple times coming over the house, the church, and over the parking lot. In fact, when we had our, our Halloween alternative in the parking lot, he came over that day. And there he was in all his majesty. And that's the picture of what God wants us to find in his strength. That, that as the eagle soars under the, the air currents, we are to soar under the current of God's power in our lives. That's the grace of our limits. That's the grace of our reliance and dependence on God in our limits. It's his power that sees us through. But then there's another lesson for me here, and it's this. I need to be aware of the lure of activity. This pandemic has made us sick for activity, heart sick for it. I would say especially for activity, for activity with others. In some ways, we're starving for activity with others, right? But I think we may be in a very vulnerable position where we can confuse activity for life, especially spiritual activity or spiritual life. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean we should not be involved in spiritual activity. Hear me out. Jesus was the most active human being in the history of the world. This passage alone is evidence of all he had going on, but underneath lies a temptation. And that is to become so committed to activity that we lose our mooring in God. So time and again, Jesus puts activity in perspective. He gives it the proper priority and weight. And so as we've already read, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Activity. Corey Tenboom made two statements that are so current right now. She said, beware of the barrenness of a busy life. And then she said, if the devil can't make you bad, he will make you busy. (laughs) Can I confess to you that I have my own addiction to activity? Always feeling like I need to be doing something? Maybe you're like me at that point. It's easy for us to fill our schedules to mark every activity as essential and define ourselves by the exhaustion we feel at the end of a busy day. I mean, if we're going to be honest in our performance-based producing world, we wear busy as a badge of honor. And sometimes we view those who are not busy as odd, or maybe we even look down on them. But as Corey Ten Boom said, our busyness can be the ingredient for our barrenness and emptiness for our souls. But we like busy. We like busy because busy helps us not to have to focus on what is deep within us. Remember our friend Justin Early, our attorney friend, and the implosion that came in his life? I just see him standing in the kitchen just completely unable to put a dish away. Well, busy became his drug of choice. This is how he put it. Busyness functions like an addiction. When you stop, you have to face your thoughts 
which terrifies most of us. There are life-giving words that we often quote that can be fear-producing for some people. The words of Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. For some people, the thought of that is fearful. This is how Ronald Rollheiser put it. We, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves in spiritual oblivion. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today with our spiritual life. And you know, in this day, in this season we find ourselves in, in this last year, I think this is especially tempting today. It might be the distraction of of social media or being online. It might be the distraction of entertainments. It might be some kind of activity that you just want to keep doing to forget about all that's going on. And you know, sometimes it's good to be doing some things to forget what's going on. But sometimes we want to be distracted by whatever activity we can to numb ourselves, the chaos and the stressors of this world. But when we recognize our activity addiction, there's really good news for us. There's grace for us. Jesus said it this way, and I love the way the Common English Bible puts it. Come to me, all you who are struggling hard, and carrying heavy loads. Come to me, all you who are struggling hard. Are you struggling hard? Are you carrying a heavy load? He says, come to me, all you who are struggling hard and carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Doesn't name the struggle. Doesn't name the load. You name that. You name that. I name that. And he says, come to me, and I will give you rest. And then he says, and you will learn from me. And that's what we're doing this morning. We're learning from Jesus in the midst of this. Now, the point of all this is not to feel guilty. If you're listening to this sermon and you're starting to feel guilty about all this activity, that's not the point here. The point is to recognize there's a different way. This whole series is about a different way of following Jesus. What is it that is getting in the way of the rest that Jesus has for me, for you? What prevents us from simply coming to him for the soul rest we need? What can I do today that can create more time, more space to simply come to Jesus? Not to even accomplish anything, but just to come and be with him. Can I, as Tish Warren writes, Can I believe that the God who holds the planets in orbit deigns to be involved with even the most mundane parts of my human embodiment? Can I believe that the God who holds intention, the God who holds the planets in orbit, the God who is before all things and in him all things hold together, can I believe that he wants to be part of my very human embodiment in a way where I can, just, I can just come to him. Not to accomplish anything. Not to succeed in my spiritual life, but just to, just to come to him and find rest. Be still, the psalmist says, and know that I am God. 
Becoming aware of the lure of activity is an invitation of grace. When we're aware that we're, this activity is luring us, when we're aware of our addiction of, to busyness, it's the beginning of grace. Grace to anchor in God's presence, right? Well, there's one more lesson, and that is to desire, to desire God's desires. There's a group of men who've heard me say that many, many a time. Desire to desire God's desires. Did you notice in this passage what did not happen? Jesus did not return to the place of great success. Now watch how Peter and others come looking for him. And they, you know, it's implied they want to capitalize on this great moment. It says in verse 37, when they found him, they they said, everyone is looking for you. It would have been so easy to go back to where success had been had, maximizing what happened the day. Maximizing what happened that day before. That probably would have been my strategy. They were caught up in his celebrity status in Capernaum. Let's leverage that. The people are seeking the celebrity Jesus. Jesus should oblige them, right? But while the people are seeking the trendy and the notable and the cool and the exciting and the successful, and wow, look what just happened, Jesus goes off and prays and he seeks God. And he comes back with a different idea. He says, Let us go somewhere else. It's like the most counterintuitive idea. Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Let us go somewhere else. Let us go to the villages which were much smaller than Capernaum. Let us leave the big and let us go to that small place. For that is why I have come. What is life really about? (laughs) What am I really made for? Why have I come? into this life. What Jesus shows us is the gift of grace we find when in prayer we discover that we desire to desire God's way, not our own. And this happens when we are the most human. The most human thing to do is to desire to serve the purposes of God, not our own. In our celebrity culture, in our performance-oriented world, in our materially-based and idol-cultivating world, it's easy to be drawn in by riches and by honor and by pride. It's easy to become detoured and distracted from the main thing. Maybe you remember how the Bible puts it in 1 John. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. That's true for pastors. Pray for pastors. That's true for the church and for churches. That's true for all of us. But this place of prayer is needed. This place of prayer from Jesus that we see him seeking God is needed. If for any reason to set our desire on the desires of God. We all have desires. God gave us the capacity for desire. The most human response with our desires 
is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, I believe that if you're hearing my voice this morning, in the deepest place, I believe you desire to desire what God desires you to be. I believe that. Or else you wouldn't be gathered, whether it's at home or the small group here in the sanctuary. I believe that. But around you, perhaps the world has distracted you and it's become complicated and crowded and exhausting and chaotic. Well, the answer is not more activity, more human effort, more ingenuity on our part. No, the first answer is what we learned from Jesus. Which brings us to communion. Limits, activity, desire, In the midst of this simple humanness, let us be the most human we can be and keep going back to God for the needed grace and power to live this different way. And so Jesus, in one of those times when he went to the Father, goes to the place that defined his true source of power. And it was there that the place of prayer reorients, affirms his desire and provides courage to desire God's desire. And if we need anything, we need courage to desire God's desire, to serve God's purposes. And we learn that from Jesus. The scripture tells us in Luke 22 that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And you see, that is why we come to this table. That is why we come to communion. I'm going to ask our instrumentalists if they would come as we go into communion together. You see, the reason why we come to this table is that God's desire was to restore us. And Jesus' desire was to fulfill God's desire to restore us. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And in that moment, Jesus demonstrated for us a different way of being human, the way God intends us to be human, to desire his desires. And in doing so, he came. He lived. He suffered. He died. And he was buried. He went to the cross for us, out of that desire, in the power and the strength of reliance on God. So as we come to the table this morning, let us remember that it is his desire, his desire for us to come to him. It is his desire for us to remember that in weakness he came. And it is his desire for us to know that he knows our weaknesses. And he invites us to come to help, find help and grace and mercy in our time of need.
So let's turn now to the table of the Lord. I would ask you to prepare your elements at home and distribute them. First, the bread. For we remember that on the night before Jesus was crucified, he took the bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his followers and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As we partake, let us remember that we serve a Christ who understands our weaknesses and meets us with his grace. And when we're weak, then we are strong in Christ. Let us place our faith in the one who gave his body for us. Let us partake. Jesus then took the cup and again he gave thanks to the Father and he gave the cup to his followers and he said, this is the cup of my new covenant, my blood which is shed for the forgiveness of many. And then again he said, do this in remembrance of me. Let us remember that at the cross Jesus Christ came and he shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. That the greatest weakness of all of mankind finds redemption, forgiveness, new life in Jesus Christ. As we partake today, is there a place in your life where you need forgiveness of sin? Is there a place in your life where you need to maybe turn a new corner? Is there a place in your life where you need Jesus to meet you at the deepest part of who you are with his grace and his mercy? As we partake let us place our faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, for he has given his help to us. Let us partake. In a moment, our instrumentalists are going to play the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Because every time we participate in communion, we also participate with the lens of the resurrection of Jesus in front of us. My friends, the same power that raised Jesus from the grave is for you and for me. So I pray today that as we go from this place, we would all walk in the way of being human that Jesus taught us. Relying on God, recognizing our limits, seeking his purposes and living our lives a different way that would bring honor and glory to him. May you go, may I go, may we go and live a different way. In Jesus' name, amen.